You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our first scripture reading is from Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought at the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Our second scripture reading comes from 1 Samuel chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon was both, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of the God to Ekron. But as soon as the, the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel, and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people for there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. C.S. Lewis, in Chronicles of Nardia, um, made famous uh, the the statement, the claim, as uh, the children ask about the coming of Aslan, they hear that he's a lion, and they ask the question, is he safe? Mr. Beaver says, safe? Heavens, no, he's not a tame lion, but he's good. It's become a popular idea, something that Christians throw around. We um, saw it in the movie. They kept the lion in the movie, which is good. And then we say it. We like it. Yeah. God isn't safe, but he's good. I want to confront us with an idea in this text this morning that we don't actually like that statement. 
You see, my concern is, as we come today um, to sit under the word of God, as we come to, to see who this God is, um, we, we, we talk nice, we like nice turns of phrases, um, we like thinking of ourselves as, um, as those who have a, a nice and pious view as, uh, of God as sovereign, um, uh, but, but have you actually come to terms with how God actually works, like what he does? Oftentimes we think of God as, as merely um, a, a kind of nice psychological or sentimental kind of buffer for us. But we, we rarely think of God as acting in history, as the sovereign one behind COVID, as the sovereign one guiding and directing elections, as the sovereign one um, um, leading and causing tsunamis, as the sovereign one intervening in our lives in the most disruptive ways imaginable. But what else do we mean when we say the word God and we confess and laugh at a beaver saying he's not safe? This morning we turn to um, a humorous episode that's also terrifying. It's, we'll just call it dark humor, which is my favorite kind of humor. A humorous episode in the history of Israel in, the, in um, 1 Samuel, that this moment um, in which um, we expect things to go one way according to the storyline and God does what he wants. He just always does what he wants. And today we have an opportunity to see and understand the God who is never changing. He, he always does and acts in accordance with his nature and his character. And so as we look at this God today, um, this God that is disturbing, this God that is holy, this God who will not be managed, and my prayer, my hope, is that we gain a sense of the God that we, we worship on a Sunday morning. The God that we pray to on behalf of our children. The, the God that we petition in the face of politics that seem despairing. The, the God that we come before when we pray for our neighbors or for our business, or for our marriage, or for our friends, or our parents, or our kids. That, that we would, wouldn't be deceived, we wouldn't be presumptuous about who it is that we pray to, and that we sing to, um, and that we confess we believe in, and that we love. Rather, we would come as a people humbled by a clear and compelling an oftentimes disturbing image of the God that is. Um, the, the beauty and the importance of us coming to terms with what God does in this chapter and what he frankly is going to do in the next chapter and a little bit of what he did last chapter is that God is not a being that can be kind of conformed to your best thoughts about what God should be like. Does that make sense? Like you don't get to decide what God's like. Um, you don't get to sit in judgment of who he is 
Um, and, and, and I don't know where you've come from this morning. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. Or maybe you came here uh, because you're curious about what we're doing here. Here's the reality of what we believe. We, we don't think um, that, that any religious system that's invented by man, any conception of God um, that, that's merely the imaginings, the vain imaginings of people is worth your time. Like religion, if God isn't real, if God is merely kind of the projection of what we think a deity should be like, if that's all religion is, if you're here today, maybe you're an atheist, maybe you're just an agnostic, I don't know where you are, but I pray that you'd hear me, that then all that we're doing in this room, if what we're talking about is someone who's simply made up, something that is merely a projection of who we think we kind of need in some sort of existential crisis or need for a father or king or God, let me just tell you that this is the biggest waste of time in history. And the whole story of Christianity is tragic. You see, what we believe we're actually looking at here is the God who is there. Not the God we want to be there. Not the God we kind of wish was there. But the God who simply and absolutely is. And we can either come to terms with that, humble ourselves before that, and find there the most precious and glorious promises in the universe, or we can resist it. So my prayer for us this morning is that we would come to terms in these three chapters with the God who simply and absolutely is. And he refuses to negotiate with you about who he ought to be. We hear this story, we'll hear the story next week, um, and I think there's a human tendency, maybe it's subconscious, uh, maybe it's just below the surface, and you wouldn't admit it to anyone, but we tend to think like, man, God's, he, he's, he's kind of like blowing this out of proportion, right? Like this is a bit excessive, bringing the bubonic plague to a series of cities, Isn't that just a bit much? This is the God who is there. And he will not be managed, he'll not be controlled, and he absolutely will not be corrected. Not by you or me or anyone else. So let's look. Let's remember a bit of where we left off. Last week we, um, we left off that um, God had promised judgment against the house of Eli. Um, and Eli actually is a reflection of what's happening in all of Israel. Um, coming out of the book of Judges, what we find is not a faithful Israel um, with kind of unfaithful religious leaders. What we find is um, Phinehas, um, the, the, these, uh, these two sons of Eli who, who are doing great wickedness um, in the way that they're leading Israel are actually just um, a perfect reflection of the nation of Israel itself, which is um, this nation finds itself in a place where they're not submitted to the law of God, um, they're not submitted to the word of God, uh, they resist um, the authority of God, they resist the law of God, um, and, and, and the whole nation is just doing whatever is right in their own eyes. They're, they're just following their own sense of what they should do, their own taste for what morality and immorality is. Um, they're just kind of chasing that wherever they want to go, ignoring the authority of God um, um, over Israel. And so God promises to bring judgment, and he does. 
And just like he did over and over again in the book of Judges, um, the, the mechanism that he uses to bring his judgment against Israel are the Philistines. Um, this is a pattern that you find in the Old Testament, which is just troubling. Like God's people are rebelling against God. They're not faithful to God. They're not listening to God. They're not obeying God. And so God raises up someone who's 10 times worse, the Philistines, to come against them and destroy them. Like it's infuriating. Like maybe I, I would expect God to like raise up someone who's like maybe a little bit better. Like here's, I don't know, the Sumerians. They, they seem nice. But he doesn't. He, he, um, here's Israel, his people. They have temple, they have the law. Um, they're, they're blending kind of Canaanite worship. They're blending um, actually worship of uh, Philistine gods into their worship of Yahweh. Um, they're, they're amoral. They're, they're unethical. They're not submitted to God's law. And so then God raises up some truly terrible people to come and be his mechanism of judging them and destroying them, which is just what God tends to do over and over again in the Old Testament. And so the, the Philistines come, they have a battle at Ebenezer. Um, at that battle, um, the Ark of the Covenant is taken, the Ark of God is taken. Um, for those of you who don't know what was in the Ark, what the Ark was, um, the Ark was not like a statue or an image of God. Um, rather, the Ark was essentially a box, really pretty box probably, um, and in that box was the Law of God. It was the Ark of the Covenant. In other words, it marked Israel, it, it was the, this... Um, physical representation of um, the, the, the point at which the people of God were defined in covenant relationship with their God, in which they'd received promises, in which they'd received the law of God. Um, and so the ark was often called the footstool of God so that um, God was on his throne and he rested his feet on the ark of the covenant wherever the ark was. Um, well, well the Israel goes and brings the ark. If you'll remember, um, they, they go to battle at Ebenezer. They lose. They kind of get beaten pretty badly. Um, they recognize now that God is fighting against them and not for them. So they go and they get the ark. They bring the ark um, as an attempt to manage God, as an attempt to um, essentially use God for their own ends. What's fascinating about what unfolds is essentially they're saying, hey, um, we want um, the authority of God to come to bear against the Philistines, but we refuse to submit to him. I mean, the, the, the terrible irony, the, the terrible hypocrisy is that Israel brings the sign of God's authority and blessing. The, the, the thing containing the very law of God, they bring it into the camp as a means of essentially trying to manipulate God to say, hey, God, bring this authority and the judgment tied to it against these people over here. Meanwhile, the Israelites themselves are refusing to submit to the authority represented by the ark. We prayed this morning along the lines of the third commandment that we will not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. I'm afraid that oftentimes we try to use Christianity, use God to kind of vindicate our political aspirations, to vindicate our, our, our maybe personal and professional aspirations with no intentions of actually submitting to what God has said 
That's what Israel did. So God comes and 30,000 Israelites are killed. Their entire army is destroyed. The ark is taken. Their religious leaders and their judge die. And the ark is then taken into exile in the place of God's people into Philistia. And they take the ark to Ashdod. Now, Ashdod is probably the chief city, the main city, um, the principal city in all of um, uh, of the Philistines. And so um, in uh, Ashdod, there is a temple, a temple there to Dagon. Dagon is not merely um, like there, there's different kinds of ancient Near Eastern religions going on at this time. Um, but all of them in, in many ways are just simply kind of like reformations of the same fundamental religion. Um, but Ashdod uh, is the chief of all the sub-gods. And so you have a bunch of Baals in different cities um, throughout Philistia. Um, that kind of represent tribal or kind of regional gods. So you wanted to serve your regional god, make sacrifices to your regional god so that things would go well with your business or things would go, go well with your crops um, or your, your kids wouldn't get sick. Um, but Ashdod was kind of the chief of all of them. So um, you had to serve Ashdod, or, or sorry, Dagon. And, and Dagon is in the city of Ashdod. And so um, they bring... Um, the Ark of God, and they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, and look, um, then they, the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Um, this is not just a trophy room. Um, actually, the language here is that they take um, the symbol of God's authority, the symbol of Yahweh's presence, and they place it in a subservient place um, in the temple of Dagon. So they bring Yahweh, I'm having um, defeated Yahweh's people, um, they bring Yahweh and they, they set Yahweh beside Dagon as his servant. God won't have any of that. What does God do? Well, they set it there, it's great. Got this new God now serving our God. It's a good day. They go to bed, and they rise early the next day. Dagon had fallen face downward, in other words, prostrate, position of worship, on your face before God, <laughs> fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. This is funny. You're supposed to think this is funny. Because it is. So who's Dagon? Who are the Philistines? There's actually a whole bunch of background happening here that, that's, that makes this even better. Uh, first thing you need to know is um, the history of the Jews uh, over the last couple of centuries prior to this happening um, was essentially a history that we've, we've talked about, um, but to, to make it more explicit, uh, uh, of them um, falling away and becoming increasingly unfaithful to God. Well, what does that mean, they were unfaithful to God? I mean, it doesn't mean that they were becoming like these, you know, like they, they were neglecting just certain religious practices. No, they um, were actually integrating into their worship things that the Philistines did in their worship. So yes, we'll keep worshiping Yahweh, but alongside worshiping Yahweh, we'll worship Dagon. We'll serve Yahweh, but... I mean, what does it hurt to get as many gods helping you with your crops as you can? 
So let's worship Dagon, let's worship Baal, Beelzebub, um, let's worship all these other gods. Um, and, and then it, it begins to integrate with their, um, with their understanding of Yahweh. And, and here's the thing to know. Um, the, Phili- the, the Canaanite gods and the, the Canaanite gods that were carried over into, um, by the Philistines, um, the worship of them involved kind of, uh, it, it, it involved grotesque, um, just sexual expressivism. Um, it, it involved so that worshiping these gods always involved the corruption of sexuality, which, by the way, is always true. Sexuality and worship are intimately and inseparably connected. As you see sexuality transform in any culture, what you need to see that as is a sign that the worship in that culture is being transformed and even corrupted. Which is exactly what began to happen for Israel again and again and again and again and again um, uh, alongside uh, this um, sexual corruption um, the, the Philistines, the, their human sacrifice was a part of their worship, including the sacrifice of babies. Any time in the history of um, our world when you see children being murdered, it tells you something about the transformation of religion in that culture. tells you something about the religion in our culture. So children were sacrificed, humans were sacrificed. The story of Samson from the book of Judges, um, as he's tied there, uh, there, there's every indication in that text that Samson was about to be sacrificed before Dagon. So what would happen in the history of Israel is this worship of Dagon would corrupt Israelite worship, would corrupt Israelite ethics, it would corrupt um, Israelite's religion. Um, And as a result, God would bring the Philistines, the very ones that were the source of all this corruption, would bring them and they'd begin to oppress and enslave the people of Israel. Israel suddenly would cry out to God, help us, save us, and then God would come, raise up a judge, Defeat these Philistines. So when you see God, the marker of God's presence in the temple of Dagon, what's happening? It's God saying enough. You're not going to do this to my people anymore. You're not going to corrupt their worship anymore. You're not going to enslave them anymore. You're, you're not going um, you're, you're to um, twist their hearts and their affections and their loves. You're not going to destroy their sexuality. You're not going to unravel this society anymore. God has put his foot down and he's arranged everything perfectly. So he brings judgment against Israel. And as a result of that judgment, it appears random. It appears just Horrible and sad, the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant and they place it right smack dab where God exactly intended to be. God says enough. So Dagon falls down before the Lord God Almighty in a posture of worship. 
And then one of the best lines in this entire chapter. <laughs> Here it is. Um, verse 3, into verse 3. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Just so you know, anytime you need to put God back in his place, something's gone terribly wrong. So they put, God, they put Dagon back in his place, go to bed that night, this is great. Must have been like some sort of stiff wind blew over this massive statue. Um, it's going to be fine now. It's going to be good now. What happens? They come back the next day, and now Dagon, same thing, falling over, only it's different. His hands are removed, and his head is removed. His hands are a symbol of his power, his ability to do things. Here before the God of all the earth, um, uh, God acts in such a way as to declare your God is powerless. Your God can accomplish nothing. In the face of the God of all the earth, he cuts off the head of the serpent. He crushes the head of the dragon. This is what God does to Dagon. And then you have this, um, this weird verse, verse 5. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Um, actually look this up. There are, there are references to uh, the hopping priests of Dagon <laughs> in ancient literature. Uh, they literally hop into temple. Um, so this is actually colluded in other sources. Um, so, okay, so this is pretty great. God's just embarrassed. Um, the, the kind of the sovereign deity um, of the Philistines. What does he do next? Um, verse six, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Um, <clears throat> so something begins to happen in the city and around the city. Something here described as tumors. Um, we find out later in the text these tumors killed people. Um, these, t- these tumors created uh, a, a massive um, spread of some sort of disease that was killing people. Now, um, a number of scholars, and I actually believe this, um, have linked this and said, hey, this is bubonic plague. God is bringing bubonic plague to the cities of Philistia. Um, and the, the reason why they go there, one, is you have the tumors... I'm listed here. Um, secondly, you have a, a reference to, and the next chapter we're going to see is the Philistines send the ark back to Israel. Um, they send it with a guilt offering, and the guilt offering they send are um, kind of sculpted um, rodents um, and, so, and tumors. So the, the thing that they associated with their guilt in sending this back to Israel is um, the sign, the physical sign of their sickness um, and these rodents. Um, we also know in the Septuagint's translation of this text uh, that it actually says explicitly in the text that there are rodents um, that were running amok in all of these cities everywhere the ark went. And so what you have breaking out here is a plague. Where else do we have plagues? In the Exodus. 
You see, the story of the Exodus is, is a glorious story. One, it's about the liberation of God's people. Um, God goes down to Egypt and redeems them and brings them out of slavery so that they might worship him. And, 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 but, but one of the things that's at the heart of the story of the Exodus, in fact, you won't understand the Exodus until you understand um, that all of the plagues that, that unfold in the book of Exodus is God's declaration of war very specifically against the gods of Egypt. And so God liberates his people by destroying the gods that enslave them. And here's where I want us to sit for just a second with this question of what is God like before we look at the rest of the story. Exodus tells us that, that our God is a warrior. He goes to war. He liberates, he redeems, he saves, he forgives, but never, ever, ever take for granted that our God is the Lord of hosts. Our God is a man of war. Our God goes to fight against the gods that would enslave his people, the gods that would corrupt his people. He is not kind to them. He's not gentle with them. He brooks no rival. So he comes and he destroys Dagon. And then as the the Philistines are are kind of doing this, almost this parody of a victory parade, I'm kind of carrying the the sign of their defeat of Israel finally from city to city to city, Um, but it's a parody. Um, I heard uh, one commentator describe it. It's as if, um, there was a team, uh, the two teams playing football, and one team was just trouncing the other team. Um, and they just kept driving down the field and scoring and driving down the field and scoring and driving down the field and scoring. Uh, but every time somebody scored a touchdown, they fell down dead. Like eventually, the team that keeps scoring the touchdowns would go, wait a second, what's happening here? And this is what God does. He's paraded through the, the, um, through the cities uh, of the Philistines and everywhere he goes, mayhem and chaos and death follows. Like Wyatt Earp's famous line. Death followed with me, which is actually Revelation's famous line. I mean, this it's what God does. He goes city to city to city. And, and interestingly, um, the next city that the ark is sent to is Gath. Um, Gath is where Goliath is going to come from um, later in the book of, of Samuel. And Gath is also the city um, that, that was uh, the, the kind of the chief deity in Gath um, was a, a god known Belzebub, the, the god of the flies or lord of the flies um, that, that becomes the personification, the embodiment of Satan himself um, once we get to the Gospels. God goes there, where he goes, tumors and death and fear and trembling and chaos comes. He goes from city to city, and they finally they're going to send, him to, send the ark to Ekron. And before, this, before the ark gets into the city of Ekron, the people of um, the leaders of the city of Ekron come out and say, no, 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 we, we've seen this kind of play out. Uh, no, no, thank you. Great, glad you guys won, um, but we're not going to take this thing in anymore. In fact, um, we can't handle this. 
Uh, they, they say they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us. <laughs> they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. See, the hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. What's fascinating about just even the language at the end of that chapter and what some of the stuff that we begin to see unfold at the beginning of chapter six it is um, a sign that at least, at least temporarily, you see the Philistines seeing and beholding the power of God and the wrath of God and the judgment of God and they cry out and their cries reach up to heaven and they send back to Israel with the ark Offering a guilt offering, a recognition of their own guilt to presume upon the presence of God, to presume upon the covenant God. And they send the ark back to Israel. I think what we have here is at least a kind of um, aligned with what happens in Nineveh. Um, this sort of at least temporary repentance. This kind of temporary crying out to the God of heaven. At least a, a first down payment of what God bring about as he begins to save the nations through his true king, David, who's Jesus. So there's the story. What is God like? That God is funny. I, I, I hope you can see that. He's he loves to mock presumed human strength. But remember Hannah's prayer from a few weeks ago? Um, he lifts up the downtrodden and puts down the mighty. I mean, this is what God does over and over again. Um, he, he, he stands in the face of human pride and human arrogance and human religion and human presumptuousness. Uh, whether it's Christian or not, he stands in the face of all of it and he loves to mock it. Our presumption to form God, I mean, the, 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 the whole story taken in a whole is this constant kind of declaration or image or, or picture of God for us, of a God who simply will not be managed. Israel brings the ark thinking that will be the means of, of God defeating um, their enemies on their terms. And God says, nope, you're going to get wiped out. I'm going to war against you. Um, then the Philistines take God and say, now um, God and his strength is going to be a servant to Dagon. And our ends, our means, um, this God will serve us um, according to our, our, our agenda for him. God says, nope, I'm going to wipe out your cities and destroy your God. Do you see what he's like? He's not tame. He's not manageable. He's not controllable. He's not manipulatable. 
He's simply and absolutely there. And you can worship him. You can serve him. You can humble yourself in the presence, in the the face of the existence of the most high God, the glorious God, the good God. Or you can try to control him and find you yourself destroyed or attempt to manipulate him or refuse to serve him and find yourself on the wrong side of this story. See, our God is not manageable. He's not controllable. He casts down the proud and he lifts up the humble. You cannot manage him. You cannot control him. You can bow to him and worship him. You remember the story of Jesus in the Gospels? He, he, he cast demons out of a demoniac and sends them into pigs and the pigs all run off into the ocean. A crazy story. And for a moment, the people who lived around there had a clear glimpse of what Jesus was like. And what was their response? Please go away. Do you remember Israel at Sinai? hearing the voice of the Lord thunder from the top of the mountain. They get just a glimpse of the holiness and the majesty and the wildness of God. Do you remember what they said? Don't make us ever hear that again. Like, Moses, you go talk to God and then you tell us what he says, but we don't want to encounter that anymore. We sing songs about the cuddliness of God and how God wants to, um, we want to be in the hands of God. Um, we, 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 we sing and we presume to just waltz into his presence. But when we, begin, when we begin to pray in this room, when we begin with a call to worship, do you have any idea who it is that we invoke? He's a God who is wild and hilarious and ironic, terrifying and unmanageable and uncontrollable. A God who lifts up the humble and casts down the haughty. A a God who will destroy his holy places um, if they become simply another means of mocking him. Um, we know later on, we find out later that Shiloh was destroyed. Um, there's every reason to believe that when the battle of Ebenezer happens, um, Shiloh, which is the place where God had set his name first in Israel, um, that, that, that Shiloh is wiped out and destroyed. Um, in fact, we, we find out in Jeremiah, um, particularly in Jeremiah chapter 7, um, uh, that, that God is beginning to, to basically say that the people of Israel are, are using the temple um, just like uh, Israel and Samuel is using Shiloh and the ark. Um, and God actually points back to what unfolds um, in chapters 4 and 5 and 6. And he says, quit telling me the temple, the temple, the temple. Like, I will do to the temple what I did to Shiloh. But don't control me, don't manipulate me. 
I go to war on my own terms. I bless on my own terms. I take down and I lift up on my own terms. So, what do we do with this? I would begin here, when we pray that God would bring salvation, we pray that God would bring reformation, we pray that God would bring revival, and I think we ought to pray that. In fact, I, I plead with God that we would be a people who in our city and in our neighborhoods and in our businesses and on behalf of our government, we are on our face pleading um, that God would bring salvation, um, that God would bring revival, that God would bring transformation and renewal to every single square block of our city. But when we pray that, make sure you know what you're praying. Because when God comes and brings revival and renewal, those are wonderful, happy, positive, religious-sounding words for, oh God, come and make war on the gods of the nations. And when he comes, chaos comes. And so first, as we pray, as we plead with God that he would act, that he would move, that he would save our neighbors, that he would renew our city and bring, uh, bring about the worship of Jesus um, in every neighborhood in our city, um, I, I pray that you know as you pray these things that God is God. He will not be controlled or managed. Um, you won't be able to manage his work in our city. No, he simply begins to act and he begins to kill and he begins to make alive, and he begins to tear down, and he does it however he sees fit. And as we anticipate, as we pray for, as we wait for, as we sing towards the end that God would in fact act, I, I, I've even thought this week, I'm reading through this text, like, I, I talked to a lot of pastors in our city, and everybody um, it's interesting to hear everybody's take on the meaning of the last three years. Right? Like it's, it, mostly it's always like really hard. Very hard. Sad. That's kind of the tone. Um, and there was hard stuff. And there was sad stuff. But, but he, here's the marvel what this text kind of lights up for us. You know what God was up to the last three years? He was going to war with the gods of the nations. He was shaking what should be shaken. He was tearing down what ought to be torn down. He was raising up the humble. Um, he was lifting up um, and acting and moving and shaking and destroying and building. He was at work in the midst of all of that mayhem and chaos. In the midst of sin and wickedness and fear, in the midst of the twisting of scripture in, in horrific ways by people in God's church, um, in, in the midst of all of it. Oh, he's judging, he's killing, and he's making alive. And then third thing, what do we do with this? Do not use God. Do, do not be a Christian. Who, who, who takes prayer, takes showing up to church on a Sunday, 
that, that, that takes um, your Bible reading, um, that takes any sort of outward thing um, and becomes a, a tool by which you think you can manipulate God um, to accomplish your purposes. Oh, hear me. As a people, we must be a people who cling to and love and believe and live out and in line with the word of God. Um, we should want the destruction of the gods of the nations. Um, and may we never be a, a people presuming to bring the authority of God to bear on other people when we refuse to come under the authority of God and submit to the authority of God in, in our own lives. Do not bring to bear the word of God against gay marriage if you're not faithful to your own wife. Do not presume to bring the name of God to bear on other people's sins when you yourself would not submit to the word of God yourself. Do not be a culture warrior who is not utterly submitted to the absolute authority and reign of King Jesus. Don't be like Israel who knows that God hates Dagon, who knows that God will war against the Philistines, and so brings him out to do just that on their terms without ever submitting to the God of the Bible. May we be a people who, yes, 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 we, we need to know God's enemies and know that he has them. But may we be a people who, knowing that, are utterly submitted and humbled before the God of the Bible. We're submitted to this God of glory, holiness, and grace. Whose lives are ordered according to what God has said. Not wielding God's word merely as a tool to crush other people that you perceive to be your enemy. But rather as you come to, um, come to encounter this God, you, you fall on your face. I'm trusting in him, humbled before him. Knowing that he moves in history, he moves in our city, he moves in our nation, he moves among the nations of the earth to lift up his name, to put down false gods, but he always and only does it on his own terms. This is who our God is. He comes, he comes, and I, I just, the story of Jesus. Here's the, the coming of the Messiah, the one who has promised to conquer evil, the one who's promised to defeat the nations, uh, the one who would be kind of um, the, the par excellence, like the, the, everything else, like this whole story of the ark is like a foreshadowing, um, a, a type, a picture of ultimately Jesus himself coming and going throughout the land and destroying evil. And so um, here's Jesus, the promised one, who, who comes to conquer evil, destroy sin, put away all the false gods of the nations, and how does he do it? Dies on a cross in our place. 
Here's God, after centuries of unfaithfulness by his people, going after the gods um, of the Philistines, going after Dagon. And he, he, here's God, and he, he, instead of empowering the Israelites to go and conquer the Philistines, how does he do it? He goes into exile himself and destroys them by himself. This is how God lives and saves and works and goes to war. Let's pray. Prepare for communion.